0: And she's
1: like, what? And I was like, those were wolves. We're in Yellowstone National Park, those were wolves. And she loses her mind. (laughs) She's like, what? And that was was amazing just because we were like that
2: close. I didn't feel like threatened at all. I was just like, holy, first I was like, those are huge. I've had some good conversations with people, but sometimes they flick me off and speed off. One person pulled a gun on me. So I actually still tried to have a conversation. And ask to put the gun away.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first full episode of Roots to Reason. Today, we'll be hearing from two rather distinguished members of the Missoula-Montana community, and that's Burke Holmes and Bob Giordano. First, we'll be hearing from Burke Holmes, who was interviewed by Kara Shepard, and he represents your average, compassionate citizen who cares about... environment and the natural spaces around him but doesn't necessarily know how best to take care of them or advocate for them. Burke is a city kid turned fly fishing guide and now owner of Missoula's very own Notorious P.I.G., the barbecue restaurant we all know and love. Let's take a listen.
1: My name is Burke Holmes, and I'm 31 and a half years old, and I own the Notorious P.I.G. Barbecue Restaurants. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri.
4: Oh, so why'd you come out to Montana? Uh,
1: My dad took me on a fishing trip out here. Well, it wasn't a fishing trip. He took me out west because he had a client to visit when I was eight, and we showed up in Wyoming, and he had won a fly rod in an auction back in Missouri. And he's a total city slicker, or was, <laughs> and said, well, we're here, we might as well use this thing. And so he hired um, a fishing guide that took us to a golf course with stock trout, and I think I was seven or eight. And we used this fly rod and caught a bunch of fish, and I was obsessed with it. And the next year, we came out to Montana, because he knew how much I liked fishing. So we ended up up here, and uh, I decided right then and there that I wanted to live in Montana forever.
4: And then you, that's when you decided to come out here for college?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I tried to. I went to a private all boys school in St. Louis and it was like elite isn't the right word, but it was um, it was very academically driven. It was a good school. And like there was this, I guess, prejudice against going to like state schools. Everyone wanted you to keep going to private schools. Um, and so I kind of faked that I was gonna do that, but knew in my heart of hearts that I would always end up yeah. at the University of Montana. Um, largely because I wanted to be a wildlife biologist so I graduated from school here um, at the university in 2012 with a fisheries degree from the college of forestry
4: so you mentioned that you were wanted to be a wildlife biologist and now you're Notorious PIG owner so how did you get to that career path and how did notorious PIG come to be because I believe you're the you're the first owner,
1: right? It's not like yeah, you I'm, the, it. I'm yeah. the one and only. I started it. Um, gosh, that's kind of like a tough question. It wasn't. It wasn't like a conscious decision. I I I started. I mean, freshman year, I decided I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. That's mm-hmm. why I came to the University of Montana because the program was so good, um, and I loved it. And I did well in school for the first time ever because I really liked what I was studying. I loved the people. All my professors were awesome. All my friends were great and are great Um, and graduated and just didn't didn't have the lust for getting into that field as much as I did three years earlier Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a I had been a fishing guide for like six or seven years so every summer um, this is a big part of it every summer instead of doing field work (laughs) and like getting experience in wildlife biology I was rowing a boat and meeting people and making money and doing that. So when it did come time to graduate and all these kids were getting placed, um, I kind of neglected that side of it and had no leads anywhere as far as a job in wildlife biology went. So, A, I didn't have a really good foot in the door anywhere at all. B, I loved being a fishing guide, and what I loved about being a fishing guide was the hospitality aspect of it, taking two strangers that had never... Experienced western montana and sharing with them something that i was a perceived expert in and having a really good day and pointing out birds and catching fish and being outside and like sharing an experience with someone so to me that was hospitality that's just like taking care of someone and that's kind of how the restaurant idea came about which is i want to be in western montana forever Um, I don't want to be a fishing guide forever because I don't think my body would be able to handle it. Um, And I want to do something that's like a little bit more stable. Which looking back and realizing opening a restaurant was like the absolute (laughs) worst thing I could have done as far as stability. (laughs) Um, But it was more chasing opportunity. I'm from Missouri. Everyone likes barbecue in Missouri. There wasn't any out here. And so I kind of saw the door cracked open for something with potential like that. So that's how the restaurant came about.
4: Are you comfortable telling me your political affiliation and your values with that?
1: Uh, yeah, and and I, I'm comfortable with it because I'm so all over the board. Fiscally, I'm pretty conservative. I own two businesses, um, and I, I think I squarely fall in that category when it comes to business
0: mm-hmm.
1: and economy and things like that. Um, and I think socially, I'm pretty left-leaning. Leaning. I want everyone to just be whatever they want do whatever they want and be happy and I don't think government should be telling you how you should feel or act for the most part Um, and I guess hearing myself say that I'm somewhat libertarian which is kind of a if you don't bother me I won't bother you kind of a deal yeah Um, mostly I would also categorize myself as mostly overwhelmed and frustrated when it comes to thinking about how I would land on the political spectrum. Why is that? (laughs) Because there's so much, I mean, I feel like the, and this is why when you, to be frank, I didn't exactly know what I was walking in for this interview, but (laughs) when you said, like, one of the points of this is to figure out how to have important conversations with people, Mm -hmm. that's my biggest gripe with everything, like, kind of going on right now, um, which is... As soon as the conversation starts, you're labeled in one category or the other, and there's no getting out of it. And it's not, and it's, I mean, if you are fiscally conservative, then it also means that you're pro-life, pro-gun, anti-gay marriage. Like, here's this laundry list of attributes that we know you believe in.
4: Yeah.
1: And how do you have a conversation past that? Right. And that's why it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, I just, I haven't, it's been so hard to sit down and have a conversation with someone and be like, oh, I feel this way based on these ten things, and why do you feel this way based on these ten things? It's so, it's just too divisive. Yeah. And frustrating and exhausting.
4: Yeah. Just kind of a segue from that. What are your thoughts on the media in today's social climate? And do you think that it's a big driver into... I don't know the fault of these frustrating conversations why they're not
1: productive i think that if the media is not like a number one culprit i don't know what is election wise and then like pandemic wise for the most part i was pretty ingrained and in tuned and i picked my news sources like i don't know i felt like responsibly like i I would listen to the bbc and read bbc Mm -hmm. and npr and that was it like no major news networks i'd read the Missoulian. it i started getting like really bummed out like wake up put on NPR, drink some coffee, and even NPR would be like, come on, guys, like, is that the whole story? Whether uh, whether it fits my narrative or not, it was easy to be like, whoa, there's clearly a bias here.
4: Yeah. Have you ever thought about your own biases and how, has that, shaped, how that has shaped your relationship with the environment?
1: Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I thought about it... Th- five minutes ago when I was talking about the river Mm -hmm. and I was talking about how no one respected the river and then immediately realizing that I was a fishing guide on the river for six years and I was clogging it up all the time and I was like a rambunctious 20 year old drinking way too many beers on my raft and I was that person yeah and there was no one like no one told me not to and who am I what a hypocrite I am to say man what a pain in the ass all these people are but what am I doing right help besides griping on a podcast
4: tell me a time when you felt extremely aware or connected to your environment and i want like a story
1: Ooh, story
4: i can tell you my story if you want i went on a week-long scuba diving trip in the bahamas Ooh, where um that's a good question (laughs) it was just we literally landed drove like 20 minutes to the docks got on the boat and we were on the boat for a week
1: that sounds awesome. Okay. Yeah. So you were just flying so was, all around.
4: Yeah. So I okay. just lived on the boat. I never was on land. And we were just doing three to four dives a day. And after every single dive, we'd come up on the boat. And each one of us gave a presentation about a specific species and why, like, where they came from, like, evolved, and also what's impacting them today. And then, you know, the next time you went out on a dive, you would look for that. And you'd be like wow, I know your whole story, and now I'm killing you just by, like, being human. Yeah. Um, And that's, so yeah, that was my, before my senior year, and that week was when I decided, like, I want to do something in environmental
1: realm. Ooh, I've spent so, so, so much time outside, and have just, like, I was (laughs) guiding in Yellowstone National Park a while ago, and we were, I had this, really nice lady from South Carolina and it was just me and her and we were walking up the trail to the first meadow meadow of Slough Creek early one morning and I was ahead of her trying to like goad her on like she's older I was like well, we're never gonna get there but, like, we're walking at her pace and so I was probably like 40 yards ahead of her just like hey I like, catch up like let's go and I just hear her go whose dogs are these And I turned around, and there's a black wolf and a gray wolf. And the gray wolf is, like, five feet behind her, like, sniffing (laughs) on her, like, doing the, like, lab thing. Like, do you have any food kind of a deal? And I was like, oh. I was like, I don't know. Let's just (laughs) keep moseying. And so we, like, wander up the trail and get there 45 minutes later. And I'm, like, peeking, and now I'm, like, behind her, like, two feet, like, just thinking I'm going to do something um, if they show back up and walk to the end of the trail. And I was like, Sherry, those were not pets. And she's like, what? And I was like, those were wolves. We're in Yellowstone National Park. Those were wolves. And she loses her mind. <laughs> she's like, What? And that was, that was amazing just because we were, like, that close. I didn't feel, like, threatened at all. I was just like, holy. First, I was like, those are huge. I've never <laughs> seen one that close before. I was like, those are very big. Um, but, like, they just left and yeah. left us alone. And um, first off, I was like, that's incredible. I can't believe that we, I got to see that. She got to see that. Second of all, I was like, How do you not know what those are? I was kind of like blown away by like just how out to lunch on the whole like where we are, what exists here kind of a thing. Um, That was a bizarre experience. But it was like such a conflicting feeling because you felt like you're ruining it by being there. You know, it's kind of like diving. Like I used to dive a lot. Um, um, same thing you're like oh I don't belong here you're you're like this is all working I don't belong Mm -hmm. kind of a deal and like leave well enough alone Um, coming from a guy who all he he does is fish So yeah yeah,
0: conflicting for
4: sure how do you think like humans and like beautiful places like that can belong together because I guess when I think about it I think that Like, the reason everything is getting destroyed is because we don't realize we all belong to the same planet, you know?
1: Well, I mean, it's, like, think of the things that we just talked about. Like, Mm -hmm. you were on a boat in the Bahamas. I was in, I'm talking about, like, guiding in Yellowstone National Park. Normal people don't do that stuff. Right. We're, like, so fortunate just to be able to say that that was a trip that we went on, you know? So, we're connected to that, and we saw something mind-blowingly incredible that moved us but we are like the top one of one percent that gets to experience things like that
4: have you ever had a frustrating or difficult conversation surrounding climate change
1: uh yeah like I've, and this goes back to kind of the the divisiveness
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean the the folks who are just like <laughs> think, think it doesn't exist um that bums me out yeah, because it's pretty obvious, and like not not because I like got a degree in science or anything like that. Um, it's just like it it is what it is. Like it like look everyone, pretty much everyone besides the person I'm talking to agrees that it's a thing, and past that we can like, well I can I'll have the conversation of like how did it happen, what's causing it, what do we do? Because frankly I don't I'm not a hundred percent sure on any of those three things plus a laundry list of other stuff, but the idea that it doesn't exist, um, yeah, that's a tough one for me.
4: Do you believe that healthy conversations about climate change are possible?
1: Yes, I think we're having one right now.
4: Yeah? How do we do this with other people?
1: Yikes. I just wish everyone would be a little bit more open to other people's opinions instead of just saying, "Uh uh-uh that ain't the way it is just hear people out a little bit better yeah I mean if if it was I think we think about it from the aspect of like how can I get this person to understand what I'm saying and I think what is probably ultimately a little bit more fruitful is saying how can I open myself up a little bit more to what this person is saying
0: yeah and
1: maybe ask some questions and really pay attention and say okay that's what they believe I might not necessarily agree with that But my next step is, hey, how did you get there? Like, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm more curious as to, like, how your brain's working and how you got to the feeling or the emotion or the conclusion or the idea that we're talking about right now.
4: Knowing the threats of climate change and everything, has it influenced um, your take on being a business owner?
1: Yeah, big time. I mean, we see it on a nearly daily basis. Mm-hmm. Whether it's protein prices because of a drought, and the cost of beef goes through the roof, that's like a—it's a real thing. Um,
4: Do you think it gives you a platform to take on like climate action initiatives?
1: No, because I think that I'm so naive about like I think that there's so much misinformation
0: mm-hmm.
1: that like I- I'm not. This is this is a. F- a fun podcast, because I've never ever been asked to be in an interview or speak about something that I'm not somewhat an authority on. yeah, I, I mean what I'm taking away from all of this is like I don't know enough to like really do anything actionable, and yeah. one of the reasons I don't know enough to do anything actionable is because I trust about half of what I hear, and I really don't know how to start a conversation
0: mm-hmm.
1: and get anywhere, yeah. And so, I mean, am I, like, passionate about it? Yeah. Do I want it to be better? Of course. But there, it's, like, daunting. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, it's embarrassing for me to say that, but it's also the truth.
4: Yeah. Thinking about the future of climate change, list three words you think of, how you feel about them, and why.
1: Oh, man. God, they're all so negative. Like, bleak. I don't know, bleak's a word. I don't want it to be one of my three words, but... um, Hopeless is, I guess, also, I don't want that to be one of my three words. Feel anxious. Anxious is one. Mm -hmm. Just like what's, it's something that feels so gradual, like, oh man, didn't get snow today, but I think we all live like 20 minutes at a time, and when we like fly up to 10,000 feet and look at it from like a year-to-year basis, you're like, oh, shit, it didn't affect me yesterday or the day before that, but in the grand scheme of things, this is going a lot faster than a lot of us give it credit for. So anxious and frustrated. I think frustrated is a good word. Mostly because, uh, frustrated myself primarily because there's probably a thousand things I could be doing that I'm not. And I think it sucks even more than I'm like kind of aware
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> of it. My biggest thing is I'm frustrated with how hard it is to believe like what you hear.
0: Yeah.
1: Whether it's from the news, like... Frankly, if you told me something, like, if you're like, here's a fact, I'd be like, 100% believe you,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, because we have trust and it's an individual like thing. But when NPR comes out and says X, Y, Z or Fox News says X, Y, Z or MSNBC says XYZ, i Z, I'm like, I don't trust that as far as I could throw it. Hopeful. I think I'm hopeful given the fact that like, things like this are happening yeah. and people that are smart um, care and are trying to get conversations mm-hmm. going absolutely helpful thing and honestly this little interview has got me thinking so much more about it so that's wonderful.
3: I think it's safe to say that most of us at least to some degree can relate to Burke's hesitancy in striking up what will be a challenging conversation out of the fear of being minimized into a box. and having labels applied to us that don't necessarily capture the complexity of our beings or the experiences we've had. On a different note, um, Bob Giordano has found a confident stride in his activism and expertise, not only in his environmental stewardship, but as a community leader and community building individual. So up next, we'll be hearing from Bob was interviewed by Rowan Ulrich. Without further ado, here's Bob's story.
5: All right, well uh, I'm here with Bob Giordano of Free Cycles and we're just going to be talking about some climate conversations and that sort of thing. And so uh, welcome, Bob. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Rowan. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and and start with uh, asking, uh, where did you uh, grow
2: up? I grew up in semi rural Virginia in the foothills of the Blue Ridge mountains from the time I was about five till about 18. Okay. And would you say that like that experience growing
5: up in that area had a particular impact on uh, your relationship with the
2: environment that may be unique? I think, um, I know for sure it had a impact. Um, I've thought about that because I didn't grow up in a, uh, overly environmentally, um, aware household. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had access to the woods right out my back door from being about five years till nine. And I remember distinctly being, let loose free range just I could run for miles as a six-year-old out in the woods and they seem to go on forever and playing in the creeks and the trees and with friends um, so I'm not sure if it was terribly a unique experience but the the woods and the open space uh, still stick in my mind and it's probably a big reason I love being in Montana with all the open space here.
5: So would you say you had a would you say there was like a kind of aha moment where you like kind of started like becoming more aware of like environmental issues or was it kind of more like gradual?
2: Uh, I'd say it's a combination of both. I can, um, I can think of two <clears throat> aha moments and other than that it's been a gradual um, awakening to the need for being a good steward of the environment and thus our neighbors and our family and friends and the whole community and really the whole world those two aha moments one was at north carolina state university my undergrad degree i was getting at the time business management and it didn't excite me that that much it was more about just i had to pick something to graduate with everyone was doing business so i decided well i'll just do business i'll make the t-accounts balance on each side. I was good at math, still am, but I also decided to take a minor in environmental ethics, and I remember sitting in a class in Raleigh, uh, this would be the early 90s, um, and the professor told a little story about Yellowstone Park and how once the wolves were removed, The elk population exploded, and they foraged greatly on the aspen and cottonwoods along the rivers. And the rivers heated up because they didn't have the shade, and the fish started dying. That was really the first time that it started to click in my mind that everything is connected and how killing wolves can kill fish in a sort of... um, very connected way. So it made me start thinking about the West. It made me start thinking about environmental issues and how ecology is really important because I had not thought about that at all. Um, So did you have any uh, role models at all within
5: the scope of like environmental issues?
2: Yes. I don't typically have any heroes, idols, strong mentors. I think everyone has something to offer, and so it could be standing around a, the, the fire at a Free Cycles concert and just have a great conversation with someone about their views, their experience on the environment, on society, and that can stick with me just as strong as reading a quote from Gandhi or E.O. Wilson. Uh, I try to be schooled and and learn from from everyone. And before I leave the last question, there are two other uh, people at least that jump in, and I want to mention them. One is my mom. Um, She died of cancer eight years ago, but she fought very valiantly. Um, She didn't even fight. She just existed with cancer and lived with it. And she was very uh, kind and liked to have conversations with a lot of people, very sociable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And she um, she got things done. She took care of four kids and, and a family and she taught school and had a good social life. She's been an inspiration. And my dad, he, uh, he died two years ago, a heart attack. Um, he lived till 83, he had a good life. And uh, he was very um, organized, not as social as my mom, at least not while they were both living together. Later in life, he became uh, super social. He just loved to be around family and have conversations and big dinners and um, get get family together, basically. But he, he always had lists of things to do. He was very organized. Um, he liked to say, you know, keep your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. Um, He had a a lot of inspiring ways that still live within me. So my parents, obviously, like most people, parents are big, big influence. Would you say,
5: like, in maybe like a sentence or
2: two, that you have a set of core values
5: regarding, like, environmental issues and advocacy?
2: I'm going to speak of the values that have emerged in the... Organizations that I have directed for 25 years. Uh, I was the founder of both of them and director, and so my personal life can blur and um, inform and influence greatly the organizations as a founder and director. Free Cycles is something I've been uh, working on for 25 years. We started with free green bicycles on street corners. Anyone could ride them and leave them for the next person. The core values, uh, there are four that have really risen up in free cycles. One is reuse and recycle. Why why keep buying new stuff? There's so much stuff out there that we can just fix, patch, mend, repair. Um, And then if you can't do those things, find another use for it. Another is civic participation. People working together that goes maybe beyond scope of a strong and healthy environment. Uh, yet it's risen in my mind and my being to be as strong, if not stronger than the environmental part. People working together is, is incredible. It's how you get things done. Um, I sometimes think, well, if we could sit in our own free cycles bubble and crank out thousands of free bikes each year and just give them away, That would not nearly be as strong as teaching people how to build their own bike, work with the person, meet them, laugh with them, talk with them, drop a hammer on each other's toes, whatever it is, just have have some fun together and talk about making the world a better place. Reuse and recycle civic participation, green active transportation kind of obvious, but uh, I like to pedal myself around. I don't like to turn a key and sit in a lazy boy chair and push a pedal and be behind a windshield. It feels kind of gross to me. It's magical. I won't deny that. How many people drove to this campus today? Most or maybe half. But I, I think it's really hurting the planet, hurting our community and hurting our own souls. It's too easy. Lastly, environmental stewardship. Taking care of the planet comes back to what I said was an aha moment. Um, I've been thinking of a phrase lately, turn a key, burn a tree. So environmental stewardship takes on many lenses and realms in my mind. And a lot of it's just being kind to not only your fellow human beings, your family, your society, your community, but uh, nature, the animals, the trees, the water the things that give us life so uh, i I
5: heard you talk about kind of the European sort of cities their kind of model of transportation and over the years that you've uh, been running uh, free cycles and mist, have you found that uh, people in missoula have been receptive to kind of Transition to that model to some extent.
2: Yes, for sure. Uh, people are very receptive. It seems like overly receptive, yearning, craving, desiring change, better, more vibrant streets, trails that can take you where you want to go, get you out into the wilderness. I think there's so many people that would drive so much less if the infrastructure and the culture nudged them along. It's, it's buried within all of us. We've all walked and um, canoed and Uh, maybe ridden some horses or or uh, whatever it may be for history and if any place in this world or in the United States could put all those pieces into one place I think it's Missoula Montana and that's the reason that I'm I'm here I want to be a part of that I want to lead when necessary I want to follow when necessary I want to be a part of this community and so every day I I feel uh, honored and blessed to be here.
5: Yeah so uh, do you
2: typically find uh, as like a whole I guess that the
5: conversations you have with people about environmental sustainability with different opinions like varying maybe polar opposite maybe um, do you find they usually end up productive or do you find them like stagnating sometimes
2: um, I find great value in different opinions uh, having a conversation and I find it's most helpful if it's just two people you introduce a third person there's teams and there's social and psychological dynamics that start to take hold people want to score points and defend themselves if it's one-on-one with a cup of tea or coffee or water or beer or whatever uh, i find you can have a legitimate conversation i like having conversations uh, one person i taught how to true wheels at free cycles this just stands out um, we don't ask people their political stripes. In fact, we drop all political stripes. We drop all our differences when people are in free cycles working on bikes together. This person had a uh, mag- MAGA. MAGA? Yeah. Make America Great Again. Woo! Uh, had a MAGA hat on. You know, it turned some eyebrows because most people in free cycles are liberal and green, but uh, a lot are not and so we are a place for everyone. I taught this person um, how to true a wheel, and we had a quick conversation. I asked him about his hat. He told me why he liked Trump, why he liked right wing, but also why he loved bicycles, and it was that one-on-one conversation that if we had been downtown and each in a group of people, and we would not have had that conversation. One-on-one is the way we need to do it. We need to find people we might think we disagree with and talk with them. And uh, I think it's fine to try to convince people of your views and your beliefs. Um, But I think you need to leave space to be convinced or change your own belief. So I'm always doing that. I'm kind of gut checking, calibrating, recalibrating, challenging myself through conversation. Sometimes people try to run me off the road while I'm on my old trek bicycle I try to catch up with them and ask them what what the heck why they do that or if they passed me way too close I try to let them know that they could have killed me um, or I was in the lane because there was ice and debris and metal shards on the side and I can't bike there and have some patience I've had some good conversations with people but I'll, sometimes they flick me off and speed off One person pulled a gun on me, so I actually still tried to have a conversation (laughs) and asked them to put the gun away. Um, Oh, it can get uh, scary. Another person, um, they just were not having any of it. I caught up to them after they swerved around me and made a dangerous maneuver by black coffee, and I caught up to them, and they, they had another passenger in the car, so... That passenger got out and I could tell we were not gonna have a conversation because it was two on one. And this person that about killed me or could have killed me was not gonna admit or or have any kind of conciliation. And I wanted conciliation and wanted to explain why I had to make a left turn and couldn't put my left hand out because of all the potholes. Mm -hmm. He was just so upset that I didn't signal and he went swerving around in oncoming traffic right in front of Black Coffee. Um, so the car is magical it is as it is and as destructive as it can be for the environment it also shields us from having conversations Mm -hmm. and that part i don't like at all on a bike or walking or public transport you're 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 in people's faces um or you're close and you can have conversation so i try to find opposite and um find resolution or at least uh I'll just say I, yeah I try to find resolution and and, and see where the differences are because a lot of times they can be overcome.
0: Gotcha.
2: Um, kind of going back to
5: uh, conversation I guess just a final question to leave it all off but what role do you think conversation will play in environmental advocacy in like the future and what hopes like I know you, you from what we've talked about and during the course of this it seems you're very hopeful for a conversation but any reservations you have when it comes to using conversation as a means of like enacting change
2: no I think it's the uh, as you've probably picked up it, I think it's the most powerful uh, avenue for change is conversation uh, planned and spontaneous most of my conversations are spontaneous and that's where I do a lot of my um, learning and Um, teaching and figuring things out and sharing ideas it's uh uh, being on the bike i can stop and talk to anyone i can make a split second decision to jump into a cafe i can uh, see people um it's rare that i would bike from my home to free cycles and not wave to and say a few people's names on the way Mm -hmm. or even stop and talk to them i usually have to allow if i have to be somewhere i usually have to allow an extra 10 minutes um because i'm going to stop and talk to someone Well, thank you so much again for coming and on and doing this.
5: I really appreciate it. This is uh, talking with Bob Giordano, Free Cycles and MIST, Missoula Institute for Sustainable Transportation.
2: Thanks, Rowan. I really appreciate it.
3: Wow. Listening to these conversations, I deeply, deeply wish that I could have met Bob and Burke myself. Since my colleagues were the ones to interview them, um, I never got the privilege to meet these fantastic and smart and compassionate individuals. But, yeah, in putting these two conversations together, I completely understood the gut-level resistance to having hard conversations. And at the same time, having the deep knowing that... Having those conversations is a necessary thing for personal and societal growth. Um, I think Burke and Bob did an excellent job, unintentionally, of displaying that tension that I think most of us probably hold within ourselves. So thanks for listening, folks. Before we close out, uh, we would like to thank our two contributing artists, our very own Rowan Ulrich, composed the music for this podcast, and Aubrey Frissel, who translated the ideas of this podcast into a work of art, quite literally, with our logo. So thank you all. Look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Not seeing. Catch you later. (laughs)